0: Hope you brought a Bible tonight. If you didn't, we'll have the words on the screen, but uh, we'd love for you to have a Bible. If you don't, if you need one, uh, we can definitely help you to get one because those are that's something great that you can have and and uh, get into every day. And so, if you have that Bible, would you open it to 2 Corinthians chapter ten? We've been studying through the book of Second Corinthians for the last few months, and it's been wonderful. We find ourselves in chapter ten. And we already started talking about this on Sunday morning. How many of you were here Sunday morning? Anybody? All right. If you were here Sunday morning, uh, we talked about um, those strongholds and fortresses and things that, in other words, things and thoughts and patterns and habits and cultural things, all of these things that uh, kind of have made a stronghold and made a fortress that first got to be torn down so that something else can be planted. And... um, we read out of chapter 10, and we'll take a bit of a different uh, route tonight. And so let's start with verse 1, and I want to uh, get into this right away so that we can get all that God has for us. But tonight we want to focus on a bit of a different, uh, bit of a different f- uh, theme in this chapter, which is uh, seeing things spiritually, uh, supernaturally as opposed to just naturally, seeing things as God sees them, valuing the unseen more than the seen. The Bible says that the things that are unseen are eternal, whereas the things you can see are only temporary. If you think about it, the plants, people, the world, everything around you, money, doesn't matter what it is, it's temporary. If you can see it, it won't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So there are things that God has uh, given to us. There are things that we have in Christ. There are things uh, that we know uh, that are eternal. That, that'll never go away. The Bible says the earth will pass away. It says the sun will go away. The moon will go away. And even science bears that out. But it says the word of the Lord will endure forever. It'll never end. It'll never cease. And so um, we want to focus on the unseen tonight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul had to defend himself in this book. There were... Um, Other ministers or so-called ministers that came along, they were trying to tear him down and tear down the ministry that God had sent them to do. And uh, we're really doing it out of selfish motives. We're really being competitive and petty and all of those fun things that shouldn't be said among the church people, but nevertheless they were. And the Apostle Paul defends himself here. And uh, he says, now I, Paul, myself, urge you By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, that's very interesting. It's going to be very important tonight. Meekness and gentleness of Christ. When we read those words in the English language, they sound quite frankly wimpy. Meekness and gentleness sound like something when you can't stand up for yourself, you're forced to be meek and gentle. But of course, we know that's not the story with Jesus. It wasn't that he just couldn't defend himself. It's that he purposely held his tongue, he purposely restrained himself in certain times, and it wasn't a a result of his weakness, but rather a result of his strength. We'll get back to that in a minute, but let's keep reading for a moment. He says, "'I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold to you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with confidence, with which I propose to be courageous against some, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh.'" In other words, here's the accusation that's being brought about him because he says it later on. Here's the accusation. This guy's really tough sounding when he writes you letters. But when he comes and speaks to you face to face, he's all calm and he's gentle. And he's being accused as being somebody who's not strong, who can't stand up for himself, who won't stand up for himself. And he's telling you here, these people that say these things about us, they regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. As if we're just normal people coming in here and giving and, and, you know, trying to run an organization or trying to give good messages, trying to make you do something. When in reality, the Apostle Paul was sent by God himself. And because he was sent by God, he's not doing it the same way everybody else has to do it. He doesn't have to be uh, forceful when he's present with them because the words that he's speaking are words of life, are words of power. You know, there are times to be forceful, there are times to shout, there are times um, to be firm. But the scripture is also clear that it's not by yelling louder that you get things done. It's by the power of God in those words. You can scream, you can shout, you can do all those things, but if there's no power in it, it will have the illusion, the picture of power, but no real power in it. The scripture talks about those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. The scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' time could teach better than anybody else could teach. But when Jesus came to those same villages, it said the people marveled, because here was a man who spoke with authority, not like their teachers. See, their teachers might have been louder. Their teachers might have had fancy words, but there was something... in Jesus' message that carried authority, that carried a power in the very words. Because guys, being rough, being tough with your words, there's a time and a place, but, you know, kind of giving the illusion that you've got something going on when there's really nothing behind it will only get you so far. Going in and saying, yeah, I believe this, I believe this, I believe in the power of God, I believe in the blood of Jesus, but yet there's no fruit from that? It doesn't matter how much you talk about it, but if there's no power behind it, it'll be apparent after a little while. It won't take long for people to figure out there's no power behind what you're saying. When Jesus came in and he said to the lame, walk, when he said to the blind, see, that wasn't convincing. That wasn't just a really good message. They actually saw. They actually began to walk. There was authority behind what he said. Here it says, these people think we need to come to you and yell and scream as though we walked according to the flesh. Watch this in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we're not ghosts. You know, we're not just ghosts that float into town and preach to you on a screen. We're real people. We walk according to the flesh. We live in real bodies. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, which means... The way we fight our battles is not the way everybody else fights theirs. Now, you might think, well, if we fought battles the way everybody else did, we'd get more done. And that is just crazy. That's that's being ignorant of the power of God, the most powerful force in the universe, the center of the universe, the core, the creator, the beginning, the end, alpha and the omega, the powerful God that we serve. For us to think we have to do something like everybody else is to take him out of the equation. It says, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. Another translation says, mighty before God for the destruction of fortresses. I said this on Sunday, but fortresses tend to be those things that have been there so long and they're so big and they're so powerful that everyone assumes they'll be there for the rest of your life. And here he describes these fortresses as patterns of thought, as arguments that have been brought up against the gospel, as cultural uh, standards, as things they've chosen to believe. And he says, when we come in, we do warfare. And we pull down strongholds. We pull down down those false things. He says they're powerful for the destruction of fortresses in verse 5. We are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now when it says every lofty thing what does that mean? When you think of lofty you think of something that's high up that's kind of up there, right? The thought here is that when people get stupid they get arrogant. It's a bad combination, isn't it? The most arrogant people you'll ever see are also the dumbest because you know, you, you, get to, you get to be humble, and, and that's the beginning of knowledge, knowing that you don't know it all. There's nothing worse than somebody talking to you that thinks they know everything and prove with every word that comes out of their mouth that they know very little. Right? And I've been that guy. <laughs> I'll admit, I've proved my foolishness at times by opening my mouth once too many times. And you have to learn That uh, humility doesn't say I'm always just, I know nothing. Humility starts and ends with the knowledge that he is our wisdom, he is our strength, that God is infinitely smarter than you. But here's the good news. His ways are higher, his thoughts are higher, and yet he doesn't just say, well, you're down there, you little worm. You'll never be anything like me. He says, come up here. Come up. And, and listen to what I say. And say what I say. You've been seated in heavenly places. So God is not just saying, it's so good. It's so good that you're so far down. I like to be far up and spit on your head. No, God is saying, come up here. Listen to what I say. Heed my words. Open your ears. Open your hearts and learn from me. Isn't that wonderful? So here... There are lofty speculations. Here's the funny thing. Every now and then, you come across, I remember when I was a kid, I used to, (laughs) when you were camping and we'd be by ourselves and I'd just have some time, some free time alone. Every now and then, you'd find a friend in the campground, but every now and then, you were just completely alone and you had this Calvin and Hobbes moment where you're in your own imagination. And I remember many times finding anthills and just messing with their civilization. <laughs> not killing them or anything, but uh, changing the order of society. <laughs> Seeing how I could change that and you know, see if I can mess things up. And and you know, that may not have been the nicest thing I ever did. I was just trying to study them, and you can only study them with experimenting with them, right? So. You know, you put a little stick here and see what they do. You, you change their route and see what they do. And they're pretty smart creatures. And I can only imagine as they look up what they might think of my life. Right? And I bet they got it figured out, or they think they do. But you know an ant might look at you, and all the ant can do is the ant will, and I'm assuming this is what the ant thinks, because we've never talked. <laughs> but I assume that they look up at us and go, those are big insects. And I don't know how, they don't work together too well, but they're big, so they get things done. And I'm sure their thoughts don't go this deep at all, but can you imagine if they could think, and we could read their thoughts, what they'd think of us. They would frame our civilization, our society, they would imagine it in in the best terms that they could understand. To them, we'd just be big, giant, ant-like people. They would have no idea of our families. They'd have no concept that we go to Disney World. They would have no reason to believe we'd ever want to swim in the water. These things that they never get, and they wouldn't know why we did stuff. We must seem totally illogical to people, to ants, I mean. (laughs) We do seem illogical to people, too. But we must seem totally illogical to an insect or a dog. Dogs think they've got you figured out, but then you do something that totally changes their perception. You can imagine how they might try to figure us out. And you think that's kind of the way people try to do with God. If they truly believe God exists, they try to frame him as if he's just a big giant human up there. But he's not. We were made in his likeness. We were made in his image. But he is the creator. He is God. And while we still got a brain that's limited, he is unlimited. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And so when we try to, put our, to, to frame him and our ability to understand him, when we try to come up with these great theories, or even when we try to take uh, these big pains to, to figure out how the universe began. I love science. I love looking at the theories. I love looking at the experiments. But we got to be honest with ourselves. In the 50s, the common scientific standard and belief as to how the world began, is so drastically different than it is right now. In only a matter of over, just over 60 years, it's almost unrecognizable how much these things have changed. Whether it was, you know, whether they believed there was a primordial soup, what was in it, all these things. Science changes every year. And yet we arrogantly say, this is how it happened. This is how it began. But in 10 years, we'll say something totally different. We'll teach our kids this is exactly what happened. And then we'll laugh when we grow up and look at our old textbooks. <laughs> That's what they told us what happened. But here's what science believes now. I'm all for science. But science has got to begin in humility. We're not God. We don't know what he knows. He knows a lot more than we know. Right. Science is our way of understanding things that through our best lens. But we are limited. And the best we've got is theories. Now, there's some things you can prove. You can prove gravity. You can prove all these things. But can you truly understand it? Only to a certain degree. And so when we try to come up with these ideas that are contrary to what God has said, you've got to first know what you're doing. You are taking what the God of creation has said, and you're saying, I 30-year-old Jonathan Bounds, hopefully you're not saying that because that's not your name, but you're saying whoever you are who's been on this planet less than 100 years have figured it out. You know more than he does. He was wrong the whole time. The God who's been all throughout history. Well, that's pretty silly, isn't it? But that's why it's called a lofty, a lofty speculation, which means that somebody got pretty stuck up and started to spout off. I know about this we know about this. If you really think about it, it's like this. Instead of subjecting themselves to the word of God. So the apostle Paul had to come in and fix some of this stuff. Because they had these apostles come in, these false teachers that would come in and give their theories on stuff. They'd, they'd start preaching something contrary to the word of God. And, you know, you got to come in and fix this. And so he says, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against God. The knowledge of God, because that's where it begins. Oh, thank God for knowledge. Thank God for your brain. God gave it to you. Use it. But it begins with the knowledge of him. The Bible says, and the wisest man who ever lived wrote this down. King Solomon wrote this down. He said, the fear of the Lord. And that's not being scared of God. That's the reverence and awe and and worship of God says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. It's the cornerstone. It's the foundation of wisdom. So in all your learning, in all your study, begin with the knowledge of God. Because he's the center of it all. If you don't get that, everything else doesn't make sense. Look at this. We're taking every thought captive for the obedience of Christ. It was a church that had gone off in the Corinthian church, gone a little bit off the rails, been taught some stupid things, and they were beginning to kind of go off, and he's having to fix this. And he says, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. In other words, we're going <laughs> to find these guys that have, been, that have been lying to you, and we're going to correct it. He's not going to go put them in jail. He's not going to go, you know, beat them up, but he's going to correct them in love. And it says, you were looking at things... As they are outwardly, if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame, for I don't wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, whose letters are weighty and strong, but his personal pres- presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. In other words, these, these, are the, these are the Harvard guys, right? They've come along, and they've said, oh, he's got these fancy letters. But when he comes, he's pretty unimpressive. He's short, and his speech is contemptible. His Greek accent is terrible, He uses these stupid country phrases. You know, I don't know what they're saying. But you see, instead, and I've talked to you about this before, we've had guest speakers, guys. You've had guest speakers that are very eloquent, very educated and refined. We've had guest speakers that are down home, but they've got the goods as well. And anybody who's anybody If you've got any brains about you, if you've got any smarts, what you'll do is you'll realize that God is using a human vessel, and I'm going to get past the outward appearance. I'm going to get past the outward style of delivery, and I'm going to hear what God is saying through a human being. And a flawed human being at that, but God is using them. It's a silly thing when we come to church and somebody talks in a way we just don't like so we don't hear anything they say because we we just don't like the way they talk. That's sad. Would you go to a, a fancy restaurant and just not like the waiter's mustache, so say, you forget this. But it's free. Someone else is paying. I don't like his mustache. Nobody with that mustache is bringing me food. Wouldn't that be dumb? Enjoy the food. Now, if the chef is really grubby and dirty, that might be a different thing. But how silly for us to judge by the outward appearance when it's not the outward appearance that does anything. I'm sorry, did you get saved by handsomeness? Yeah, first person that I ever witnessed to me was ugly. And I could not feel Jesus. But then the Lord sent me a looker. And as she told me the word of God, I heard it for the first time. How stupid would that be? Or, you know, somebody was about to pray for me. I was sick. But, but you know, I found a guy on the street that doesn't believe in Jesus, but he's got the nicest English accent. It just sounds like everything he says is brilliant. I'm sure God will hear more from him than that country bumpkin who's praying for me. Can you pray in a British accent, maybe? God would respect that more. Now, I'm being silly, but, but in reality, it is silly to, to make the outward appearance and the outward sound and, uh, and the presentation, that, that you think that's where the power is. Isn't that sad? And unfortunately, some people pick their church because of that. Now, I'm not throwing any stones, because thank God for churches. Thank God for churches in Lloyd. But it'd be sad if you picked it because you liked, you know, I mean, I'd thank God for nice decor, but it'd be sad if you picked your church because you like the decor, or you, you know, you just like the way that the praise and worship team dressed or something dumb like that. That would be silly when, when in reality, those things don't do anything in your life. What really changes your life is the power of God. That's unseen. You go where the power of God is. So here he says, he says, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. We're not two different people. We're the same people. We're going to go back to the, the beginning thought where he talks about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Those are some powerful things. Because look at what he's saying. He says, they're judging us by the outward appearance. They're not judging us by where the real power is. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. You can't see them, you can't describe them in fleshy terms. They are mighty before God. What's inside of the Apostle Paul was way stronger than what was on the outside. He says, we're not concerned, we're not manipulated. We're not going to let ourselves be manipulated because here's what happens, guys. Sometime in your life, you are going to feel the pressure. You're going to feel the pressure from the outside to, be, to, to begin to approach spiritual issues and spiritual problems in a natural way. You've got to resist it. We approach spiritual problems with a spiritual God, a spiritual, in a spiritual manner with spiritual weapons. You've got to approach issues with the power of God, not just saying, well, let's handle it logically. Let's handle it like a business person. Think about it. If it's a spiritual issue and everything at its root is, how much more powerful is the power of God? What if Jesus had gone around, just gone around with painkillers? And when sick and dying people would come to him, he'd say, well, just take a little bit of this. I feel better. That'll go away. But I'm glad you felt better right now. Wouldn't that be sad? He didn't go around healing people by natural means. Now, I love doctors. I got no problem with that. Thank God. There's, you know, God can give doctors great wisdom, Right? but there are certain spiritual things that we've got to approach spiritually. The Apostle Paul knew if he was gonna change this city, if he was gonna affect that church, yeah, he could be manipulated into into preaching more outwardly powerful, into being louder, into seeming stronger, but he knew the real power was not what people could see, but what was unseen. He'd much rather be that guy. We've got to choose to approach spiritual problems with a spiritual mindset. Not say, well, this is how I know to fix this. This is how I know to approach this. You know, there are plenty of times, guys, we we just were talking about that offering that we took up for the church in the Philippines. We could have approached that with a business mindset. Let's do a raffle, let's do a fundraiser. But instead we ask God, God, would you supply the need? And God did it. God did it. You've got to believe. That what you can't see is much more powerful than what you can. He says, I urge you by the gentleness and meekness of Christ. The word meekness is much, understood, much misunderstood. It's a phrase that when we think of somebody who's meek, we think of somebody that's wimpy and weak. But in reality, Christ, Jesus, was never wimpy. He was never weak. The times he's described as meek were moments like this. When... It was time for them to take him in and arrest him. And they said, we're looking for Jesus. He says, I am. And the soldiers that were trained soldiers, trained special forces that came to arrest him, came armed to arrest a teacher. When he said, I am, they hit the ground. When they got up, he said it again, and they fell down again. And the reason he did it was this, because he had said more than once, I want you to know, no one takes my life from me. I'm laying it down. So then when he's taken in front of Herod, Herod's trying to get him to defend defend himself. And if anybody could give a good defense at a trial, it'd be Jesus. I mean, here's a guy who, I mean, like the saying goes, he could sell a snow cone to an Eskimo. He could, you know, he, he had the words. But he didn't. Because Jesus never manipulated with his words. His words were the words of God. And when it came time to defend himself, he kept his mouth shut. He could have, but he didn't. On his, at one point he says this, if I wanted to, I could ask the Father. And he'd send legions of angels to come and deliver me. But I'm here for this purpose. In other words, thousands of angels. Now, there's a story in the Bible of one angel that wipes out a whole army. What could thousands of angels do? They could do a lot, right? He said, if I wanted to, I could get thousands of angels to come and rescue me. And you know what? He wasn't just bragging. He could. He was the son of God. But he said, I mean, you think about it, these angels were there when he was risen from the dead. He's not just giving empty promises. He backed it up. There were, like I said, elite force Roman soldiers guarding his tomb on resurrection day, and that tomb busted open, and those guys went flying. So he could have done that. But he says, I won't. You see, that was a fruit of the strength on the inside of him, that he wasn't going to be manipulated. And when, they, when he was on the cross in the process of forgiving them while he was on the cross, they said, if you're the son of God, why don't you get some angels to help you and come down from the cross? How many times are we baited into doing something we didn't have to do? Because we want to show somebody. We want to impress somebody. We we don't want to seem weak to somebody. But you never have to respond to people. You never have to react to people's expectations. You only have to respond to the voice of God. And when Jesus was being taunted, yeah, he could have. He could have just said, just that guy. Just knock him down. (laughs) Just put him to sleep for a while. Just make his head pop like a cherry. But he didn't. He didn't. He held his tongue. That's the meekness of Christ. In fact, that word meekness comes from a Greek word, which means, uh, there's another word which talks about gentleness, as in, being outwardly gentle to somebody. The, the, you know, the outward expression of gentleness. I'm not going to punch you in the face even though I want to. No, this is outward gentleness. But this word here is, is more than just the outward expression. It, it defines the inward grace. It's, it's the inward calmness and peace that even when turmoil's all around you, you're trusting in God. You're not concerned about what people say or what people do. You know who you are. You hold your tongue. You don't fly off the handle because you're strong enough. I've said this before. I've used this example before, so forgive me. But when my little 15-month-old comes and he's got this new thing where he likes to put his head down like a bull and hit me. You know, I'm big enough, and this isn't a big brag thing because he's just 15 months old. But I'm big enough that when he does that, and we're playing rough, I don't go, oh, Moses, and you know, and react to him. He's just a little guy. I'm strong enough. Now, I know that's not saying a lot. He's a baby. But I'm strong enough that I don't have to react and fly off the handle. I remember the first time that I caught my dad off guard as a kid, I punched him somewhere I shouldn't have punched him, and I just hit him hard. And I remember that look of pain in his eyes. Yeah, I was playing. I wasn't mad at him. But I thought my dad was invincible. I thought you can hit him with a baseball bat and he'll be fine. You know, that's the way dads are made. Remember that look of like, ow, that really hurt. And it just took a deep breath. Mm -hmm. Count to 10. Don't do that again, Jonathan. Why? Because he's strong enough to not have to react to me, to not have to come and beat me up. He's strong enough that he could take it. You see, a weak person has to react to everything. A strong person's got that inner peace, that inner grace that says, I don't have to respond to you, I react to God. I do what he tells me to do. Now, that may sound arrogant, but the Bible says those that are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. And so if you are a child of God, you can expect to be led by the Spirit of God. It's not arrogant to say that. It's it's right to say that. Let me read you, uh, how many of you are familiar with the Vines Expository Dictionary? Just one of the old classic, tried and true um, dictionaries that define some of these biblical Greek and Hebrew words, or specifically Greek. And I want to read you what it says. It says here that this word um, describes a condition of mind and heart and as gentleness is appropriate rather to actions, this word is no better than that used in both English versions. It must be clearly understood, therefore, that meekness manifested by the Lord, in other words, he's talking about the meekness of Jesus, and commended to the believer, that's you and me, is the fruit of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek, Because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. Isn't that big? Because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. He was meek because he could have. He could have, but he didn't. There was one moment where two of his disciples, who were at that time called the sons of thunder because of their habits of getting angry, I suppose, of being passionate. Let's say it in a nice way. They went out of a village that didn't really receive Jesus all that well, and they said, let's just call down fire on that village. Let's toast them. Let's crisp them up. That'll teach everybody. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to do that. The interesting thing is, is that one of those guys was later called the apostle of love. So something must have changed. But you see, they said that, not, and, and Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to do that because he couldn't, because that's not who he was. Because he was meek, he didn't have to react when someone didn't receive him. It's so important that you don't allow yourself to be baited into reacting naturally to a supernatural issue. It's so important that you don't react like everybody else reacts, that you don't tackle your problems like everybody else tackles theirs. That you don't go and try to fix things with what you learned in the natural when God is offering you his ability. The Apostle Paul says, we walk in the flesh, but our weapons are not of the flesh. They are divinely powerful. And I've seen this over and over again. Some of us have to fight against our own experience. Because maybe you came out of training that trained you to deal with a certain situation a certain way and you have to relearn that God can do much more than you ever could and so there are times and I know there are times when you get on your knees and the Lord tells you first before you do anything else I want you to pray about this and you get on your knees going God I could be out there doing something true enough many times when you're on your knees God says now get up and go but you got to know, first and foremost, you can get way more done in prayer than you can get any other way. And there's a time to get on your knees and fight. There are times to get on your knees and do, a, and do battle with things you could never do naturally. We can form these little committees. We can make these little, we can have these little meetings where we come up with ideas. But the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, they that are working are working in vain. It's useless. And maybe you've tried to do something over and over again. And it's never worked. And you say, I'm doing all the right things. I've read the books. I've took the classes. Why isn't it working? And you have got to relearn how to live. You've got to relearn how to say, I'm going to let God fight. And where I'm weak, he's strong. I'm going to let him do what I can't do. The Apostle Paul was strong enough in himself, confident enough in who he was in Christ, that he knew this. They may think I'm a wimp because of the way I talk, but I know the way I talk is not what gets people delivered. It's the word of God. It's the power of God. It's the love of God. It's the grace of God. That's what's getting things done. And so these guys would come, and they would use all these manipulation and natural methods to get people to do what they wanted them to do. But the Apostle Paul said, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons the world fights with. Think about what Jesus said. And he didn't just say it, he demonstrated it. Do you remember when he said to the crowd of people on the mount, he says, when people hate you, when people persecute you. And that word for persecute is not just dislike you. The literal word means to hunt you down, to chase you down. When people hate you, when people persecute you, pray for them, bless them, love them. And then he goes and does exactly what he said. Then he goes and forgives the people on the cross. Then he goes and loves the people that hate him. And there was a moment, even when he, even after he'd got up from the dead, where the disciples were expecting that Jesus was going to finally take his place and overthrow the Romans and take up his kingdom on earth. Even after he was risen from the dead, they still thought he was going to do that. You, I mean, one of, the, one of his disciples was called a zealot. And what that basically implied was, this guy was a rebel. He was an insurgent. He was, by some, by some definitions, a terrorist who was against the Roman government. And for some reason, he joined Jesus. And probably the whole time, he's thinking, we're just waiting for our moment, and then Jesus will rise as king, and I'll get to be there. And I'm sure they got excited when Jesus told them a couple swords is enough. Oh, yeah, here it goes. And Peter, getting revved up. Because in the garden, Jesus is like, the time is coming. You know, and they're like, the time is coming. <laughs> and he's like, you know, the hour is coming. Satan has been judged. And, and oh, this is big, right? And so when the when crowds come with, and the, the soldiers come with torches to get Jesus, they're like, it's on, it's on. You notice no one ran away at first. But they're all like, this is it. So, Peter gets his sword out and he attempts a classic Roman maneuver by splitting the helmet at the seam. Perhaps he would split the head, split the helmet, and cut into the head, but he is a country fisherman and he misses and he cuts off the guy's (laughs) ear instead. And I'm sure he was thinking, This is it. Wait for it. Wait for it now. And Jesus reaches down calmly picks up the guy's ear, sticks it back on his head. And it works. And Peter's left like, okay, we're I went soon. I understand that. False start. <laughs> Peter tells him, Peter, this is not how it's going down. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And everybody runs away. When he risen from the dead, they ask him, you can find this in the first chapter of Acts, they go... So when's your kingdom happening? (laughs) Yes, we've obviously been wrong a couple of times. When's this going to happen? And he says, it's not for you to know that. Because there will be a day when he comes and rules on the earth. They were expecting him to overthrow the Romans. Here's the deal. Empires rise, empires fall. Well, What Jesus came to destroy was much bigger than the puny little Roman empire. What Jesus came to destroy was bigger than the Persian Empire, was bigger than, than the old Babylonian Empire, was bigger than the old Assyrian Empire, bigger than the Egyptian. What Jesus came to destroy was more than just those little earthly kingdoms that would come and go. I mean, come on, where are the Romans now? You afraid of Italy? Really? No. Where did that empire go? It's gone. Those empires come and go, but what Jesus destroyed was the power of sin and death that had ruled over the people for since the beginning, since Adam and Eve sinned. He destroyed the power of death, hell, and the grave. He destroyed what really had the power over us, what really needed to be destroyed. And it was something they couldn't see, but it was much bigger than just kicking Caesar out. So they said, when is your kingdom happening? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons and the epochs. But then he says this. It's in the same sentence, so it's related. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. Don't separate those two thoughts. They're the same. The kingdom he's talking about The real kingdom begins with believers, with the power of the Holy Spirit who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is a kingdom that is within you. There is a kingdom where He rules and nothing else gets in the way. And that Holy Spirit, the moment they receive the Spirit, what did He say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Boy, did they ever. We are spirit-filled believers here tonight. Don't ever let anybody talk you into approaching a situation in a natural way when you've got the Spirit of God in you, when you've got His Word on your mouth. There's so many times we could be tempted to just react to people and to react to situations and say, fine, I'll do it myself. But instead what you need to do is hear the voice of God. Walk by the Spirit of God. Speak the Word of God. And act in the power of God and the love of God. This is what the Apostle Paul says in this chapter. We don't walk according to the flesh. Our weapons are not fleshly. We don't need to give it a little spitting battle with you. We don't need to to get into a little war of words. I don't need to come and flex my muscles. Our weapons are far more powerful. And they pull down unseen strongholds. What's in you? is much more powerful than what's outside of you. As Brother Burke said when he was here, when that internal pressure is greater than the external pressure, then you can withstand and you're not crushed. What did he say? We read it earlier here in 2 Corinthians. He said, in 2 Corinthians 4, I believe, he says we are pressed, but we're not crushed. It's funny that in that same chapter he says this, We have this treasure inside earthly vessels to show that this power is from God and not from us. Why are we pressed on the outside, afflicted, pressed like somebody's trying to crush us, but they can't? Pressed from the outside. The entire Roman Empire, the the, the Jews, all of these people tried to crush the church at the time, but they weren't crushed. Because what was inside was far greater than what was outside. When I say the Jews, I'm not talking about the Jewish nation. Many, all of our apostles were Jews. I'm talking about the leaders of the religious scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees at the time. All of this persecution, all of this affliction, all of this attempts to, to squash the gospel, never could. Because what was on the outside was not near as strong as what was on the inside. Never forget that. Never let yourself be baited into reacting with the outside when you've got the power of God on the inside. Never step out of the love of God because the moment we step out of the love of God, we've stepped out of the power of God. For the Holy Spirit that He gave us is a spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. He's all of those things in one. Those aren't three different spirits. That's the same spirit. And let's never again look at a spiritual problem and try to find a natural solution. Let's let God speak, amen?